0: On the Apple Podcast app. All right, Tom. Good morning, and we're together this morning, which yes, is very right, nice indeed. Yeah, yep. in, in my air square. Yeah, looking out on the frost and the snow, and everybody huddled and looking very cold. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I love this weather, but it's going on a bit long now. You know, I think the time, you know, we could do with a break. I think.
1: Well, I'm kind of glad that at least it's seasonal, as opposed to, you know, uh, all kinds of exaggerated weather patterns with uh, global
0: warming. So, uh, you know, it's no harm at all. No, no, it's good for the garden, actually. But RTE are certainly great at, you know, reading out the doom you know, telling yeah, us yeah. that this thing is going to get worse and worse. But I think they're now seeing towards the weekend things might get better. But, Tom, speaking of the weekend, I don't know if you saw the um, the English-French soccer match. I don't think you're a great soccer fan, but uh, did you see that match at all? I did. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, I'm not a great soccer fan either, but I'm watching some of these big games. And poor Harry Kane, the English captain, to miss that kick right in front of them. Post, right in front of the goal. I was very sorry for him. Um, it was absolutely appalling for him. Um, great for the French, of course. But uh, I think the the Brits were so stunned that he missed it. He's such a good kicker, and uh, you know he's such a strong kick. My God, his ball went up to the moon. I think.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it went over well, the hole
0: in the sky. Yeah, the hole in the said, sky. Yeah. Somebody said, "Yeah, I think I saw a cartoon somewhere." Some astronauts on the moon saying oh look here's harry kane's ball all right (laughs) but anyway the poor man you know he has to live that for the rest of his life you know
1: well oh yeah Yeah. that's all he'll be remembered for it is is, is unfortunately i'm afraid afraid all of the great things that he has done um, yeah the fine penalties that he has taken oh, yeah. are all forgotten.
0: I know, the poor man. Yeah. Oh, what a terrible yeah. blow. But anyway, there's more great games to come. I, mean, I will watch the rest of them now, I must say. It's getting very interesting. Yeah. So listen, then. anyway, let's talk about ourselves, Tom. Well, that's what I'm talking about,
1: really, this week. I mean, <clears throat> we're at the tail end now of the uh, World Cup. And saturation coverage, really, of soccer and football for the last...
0: <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah. For, for ages, it yeah, seems, yeah, yeah. you know.
1: And yeah. um, we've seen some of the best players in the world. And, you know, it makes you think sometimes, where did they start? Where did somebody like Pele start playing football? Or Harry Kane or yeah. Roy Kane or whoever. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> and, of course, it's in their back gardens. It's on the street in front of them. It's for small junior teams and so on. And, of course, they all need it, in all of their games, one thing, one person, and that is the man standing in the centre, the referee, Yeah. Uh, without whom there would be no games. <laughs> uh, so we all like to abuse the referee, myself included, I have to say. <laughs> now, I don't mean physically, Yeah. but um, <coughs> these are the people whose dedication to the game makes those matches possible. Sure. And... That's what I'm talking about this week. It's one such referee in Galway. Oh, good. John Keady is the man's name from Bobermoor. Yes. He has really given Galway a lifetime uh, to the game. As a youth, he played soccer with Hibernians, Galway Hibs. uh, And he was on an under-15 team that won the Galway League in 1955. The Beat Boys Club in the final. uh, And... uh, and I have a photograph of his team there Excellent. with all the names, I'm happy to say. He also played for a club called Oakdale. I never heard of that no, before. No, no. A club that was founded by Jimmy Butler, who had a business just across the street on Prospect Hill. Uh, it succeeded for a while, but unfortunately it didn't really last very long. Uh, John, When John was young, when he was 17, in fact, he developed meningitis and That knocked him out of the game for about a year. Uh, A lot of people thought that that was the end of his career, that he'd never play again. But he was a very determined young man and uh, focused, and not only did he play again, but he did for many years. And he also, he played rugby with the Corinthians. He captained a Bo's team, Bohemians team, that won the Joe Ryan trophy in 1964, uh, a team that I also have on uh, in the paper this week. They won quite a number of trophies. In fact, they were a very successful team. But when John gave up playing, when he finished playing, he he was he loved the game so much. He wanted. He felt he need the need to give something back, and so he took up refereeing. And he did so for many, many, many years. He every weekend he was travelling hither and thither. Uh, come back and forward. Uh, he refereed some very big games, including a youth international that was played in the sports ground between Ireland and Wales. Uh, but uh, his fam- he now had a family, young family, and <coughs> they were growing up. And he seemed to be devoting every weekend to a different pitch, constantly travelling from one pitch yeah. to another.
0: These are very generous men, yeah, very ab- generous women as well. I mean, these referees are great. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Oh, here here. here. Yeah. Anyway, he now he felt the need, you know, to spend more time with his family. And so he decided to retire from the game. Right. But he was so highly respected. <laughs> I don't know when he actually retired. I, right. I don't have that date. But... Um, the Galway so- Referee Society, they never forgot his commitment. Right. And in earlier this year, uh, they, as a mark of appreciation, they decided to appoint him as an honorary president, right. which is a very rich and warm kind of accolade. Absolutely. And a lovely, lovely tribute yeah, to this yeah. man. Now, all of this tribute that I have, I have lifted from an article which is in the latest edition of St. Patrick's. Harish magazine, right? Yet another terrific. and um, This is actually, would you believe, the fiftieth <laughs> uh, edition of yeah. this magazine. Yeah. It goes back to the seventies. I remember mm-hmm. it when it was actually stencilled on sheets of paper. I have copies of it happily some of some of it. Uh, they've been very fortunate. This magazine, they had three editors: uh, uh, Pedro Dowd, James Casserly, and currently Willie Henry. And this uh, version of the magazine, it's in the shops now, and it is, as usual, it's packed with some terrific uh, articles, an awful lot of illustrations. Um, i it's highly recommend it. It's a tenor for the yeah. but it's well worth it. Yeah. And every Galwegian's library should have this magazine. And the other thing about it is, I often thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if other parishes did a similar kind of magazine or annual because what's in this it's all local uh, but it's very important history and folklore and little portraits of local characters that kind of thing there's parish information births marriages deaths, etc but when you put some of these issues together you know you realize that you're looking at a serious kind of land bank of local lore and history and I think it would be wonderful if uh, other parishes began to follow this lead, mm. because it also develops a sense of civic pride and local pride in your own area, I think, yeah. as well. So yeah. anyway, congratulations to St. Patrick's Parish Magazine and yeah. to yeah. Willie Henry, the editor for yet another uh, yeah.
0: Terrific. So Absolutely. Do you know, Tom, I'm glad to say I have a copy of that magazine myself, yeah. and I'm very pleased to get one. Willie Henry dropped me in a copy. It really is uh, the newsiest. Of parish magazines, really, isn't it? It's more than a parish magazine. It's a little booklet, as you say, of a chunk of Galway's history with all its stories and the people who, you know, devote time to serving the public. Like, you see, you're quite right, though, about the referees. I see every Saturday and Sunday all the people working out, measuring out pitches to get young people playing, you know, opening up the Salt Hill GAA club there. Getting people in and out. I mean, it's such a busy thing. But all these people do this voluntarily, and exactly. they're they're to yeah. be praised highly. They yeah. really are wonderful. What yeah. they do, yeah. there's no, no here, question. Here. And you know.
1: As I say, the games wouldn't go on without them. No, no, no. So, you yeah. know, the Ronaldos or the Messies wouldn't be playing games without referees, even though it seems more <laughs> and more as if technology is yeah. refereeing the game now.
0: I know, yes. They have to go yeah. and consult the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the technocrats, I know. Yeah. Well, it's as well that they do because we see something that the ref doesn't see. <laughs> and yes. Yeah, of course, there's an outcry then. But anyway, Tom, that's just lovely. I love that magazine. In fact, I might talk a bit, bit about myself next week because there's a few characters uh, mentioned in us that yeah. that deserve to Rar, be mentioned indeed. again yeah. like shoots and people like this exactly. you know that yeah. Yeah. just made me laugh when i saw it well tom i'm i'm finishing up uh, my series on medicine <laughs> and i've learned a lot about medicine that you know certainly sometimes the lessons were learned that if there's an outbreak of typhus or cholera in the town or uh, in the community. It's very important to separate the people with the fever and the disease, to separate them from the people who are well and healthy. And that lesson was learnt through, you know, terrible consequences uh, and eventually realising that this is the only thing to do to have a fever hospital or at least to have a part of the town where you kept those who were ill, sadly, but kept them away from the rest of the population. And uh, I, this time, uh, no, in, in February last year, actually, I wrote about an outbreak of smallpox in Athenry and exactly that the uh, chief inspector, medical inspector, was desperate to find a fever hospital to put the, pe- the the people suffering from smallpox. And, of course, nobody would give him a building. Nobody was so, They were all so afraid of smallpox. So he had a terrible trouble trying to find a suitable building to separate those with smallpox from the well people. And eventually he succeeded and eventually disease was uh, sort of conquered uh, in Athenry at the time. But look, that's one thing I learned and of course I know it's obvious today but it was slow to people to cop on to it. Mm. When we had the great famine and the overcrowding in the Galway workhouse, unfortunately again typhus dysentery, cholera broke out and they didn't separate the people. So hundreds of people died in the Galway Workhouse of fever, where they needn't have died but because they didn't separate them, kept everybody living on top of each other, you know, they all caught this disease. But that was one thing that the nuns, these nuns I'm talking about last week, this Mercy Sisters who went out to the Crimea were very particular about. And of course they also had, if you like, a rival in Florence Nightingale. Now, this, the, the, the Crimea war was hopelessly organized uh, by the allied armies and uh, they, they fought Russia eventually to a standstill. But the casualties were just terrible and the hospitals were even worse. Now, and there were an awful lot of Irish people fighting in the British army. Of the British armies, uh, over 100,000 men who fought in that war, well over a third of them were Irish, of whom 7,000 were killed. Imagine, in a war so far away, nothing to do with Ireland. Now, of the 1,400 killed in the Battle of Alma, one particular battle, well over half of them were Irish. So, I mean, they really took the brunt of it. Maybe as a regiment, they were put out in the front. I don't know. I don't like to say that. But you wonder why, you know, so many casualties were Irish. They shouldn't have been, but they were. And I talked about the uh, very generous Sisters of Mercy who answered a call to send nursing out to the Crimea. And uh, uh, Florence Nightingale went out as well and... Uh, uh, she was in charge the superintendent of the the hospitals and uh, there was a very g- good leader of the irish nuns uh, sister Bridgman, bridgeman uh, who was a very confident you know self-assertive honest woman who took no nonsense from florence nightingale so the two of them were should i say frosty to each other the whole of the time but they were so busy they really didn't have time to fight it out but anyway um the sisters worked uh, in the hospitals and we have a very good testament of the actual conditions from a, a, a nun called aloysius doyle and she came back uh, from the crimea war and she was one of the foundresses of the convent of mercy in gort and wonderfully she kept a testament and a and a little booklet so we know exactly the kind of conditions uh, they, they endured and of course the position the, the the conditions in the hospitals were terrible they weren't hospitals at all mainly massive army barracks and there was just straw thrown on the ground for beds the blankets were brown with fleas brown with fleas imagine and the the soldiers used to call the fleas the light infantry and the sheets were horrible coarse canvas there was no furniture of any kind no surgical or medical appliances and there were no nurses of course only for these people the team that florence nightingale brought over and the 15 irish nurses now uh, the graves weren't properly dug. Um, they were, you know, the, the soldiers were so exhausted. Digging deep graves were, were were not really what they had the the strength to do. So, and there were no coffins. So bodies were just put into shallow graves. The smell was terrible. And then in the winter time, the soldiers suffered from frostbite. Their clothes had to be cut off. And in most cases, the flesh and clothes were frozen together. And of one quote from um, Sister Aloysius, quote, one poor frostbitten soldier told the sisters while lying one night at Balaclava, he tried to stir his feet, but found them frozen to those of another soldier whose feet he was lying against. <laughs> so you can imagine how cold that was. No, we right. think it's yeah. cold now, but yeah. there's nothing Indeed. compared to what they had. And they were exposed. They were outside. So the food was terrible, awful, unedible, but you know, wonderfully the nurses and the sisters got things under control. And what really irked uh, Nightingale was that Bridgman was well able to go out herself and requisition what she needed proper food, warm blankets proper straw for the beds and she did this of course much to the fury of um, nightingale who couldn't stand it yeah, two, uh, strong uh, women. two strong women yeah, yeah. but it's kind of it's kind of more to that i was suggesting last week there was a lot of jealousy on the part of nightingale because what happened to nightingale was extraordinary she became uh, a kind of uh, a huge influencer of the day she was discovered by the press and she was photographed and she was painted looking after the sick and this great image of her with a lantern at night going through the wards attending the sick gave her the title the lady of the lamp and. I'm almost certain, Tom, by her attitude to the poor Irish nuns, she did not want to have competition for that role. She was very happy being this heroine. And she turned out and was hailed as a great Victorian heroine and deserved a lot of the praise she got. But she had this constant duel with, with Sister Bridgman and the Irish nuns. Anyway, anyway, in October 1855, after the fall of Sebastopol, Sir John Hall, now he was the principal medical officer of the whole Crimea, of the English army in the whole Crimea. He disliked Florence Nightingale's officious manner and he asked Sister Bridgman would she and her sisters take over the running of the new general hospital at Balaclava. Now this, this had to be a blow to poor Nightingale's status and it was a very public vote of confidence in the sisters so anyway the sisters immediately set about getting some kind of order into this hospital scattered over 15 and 16 small huts full of patients i mean between them tom there were russian prisoners uh, civilians maltese greeks italians americans germans and africans and a deadly infestation of rats one night poor sister paula woke up to find a rat licking her forehead So sleep was out of the question. A gift of a large Russian cat, however, kept the rats at bay. But at Christmas, and this is awful, the poor nuns, they saved eggs and chickens for a Christmas feed which they would have shared with their patients only to find the rats had enjoyed the Christmas feed before them. Oh, my God. Poor people. (laughs) Now, this is all taken from the uh, testament of uh, Aloysius Doyle. But disease, disease, di- disease. however, Tom, was always present. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and within a week of arrival at the new hospital, Sister Winifred fell ill with cholera at 3 p.m. one day, and she died that same evening. The, I mean, cholera was so rapid, so cruel, yeah. the way it just took over. The sisters had to watch the body in case the rats would touch her. Florence Nightingale, however, attended the funeral and joined in the prayers along with the soldiers, doctors and officers. The 89th Regiment, an Irish regiment, erected a marble cross over Sister Winifred's grave. Later that year, another nun, Sister Elizabeth Butler, died of typhus. And again, the 89th Regiment requested the honour of carrying her coffin, and they erected a white marble cross over her grave. Well done. I know. One of the duties of the sisters was to instruct the orderlies on how to keep the wards clean and to keep the rats outside and to do simple medical procedures. The sisters and the orderlies got along famously. When one of them committed some misdemeanour and he was flogged in open court, you see, army discipline was very cruel in those days. It was painful to hear his cries, recall Sister Aloysius. We were all sick. Now, in April... 1856, just months before the end of the war, Nightingale, who had influential friends in London town, she was now given charge of the general hospital at Balaclava. Later, when the sisters were getting ready to leave, it appears, and I have a note on this, that Nightingale invited the sisters to stay on, but under her supervision. But Sister Bridgman refused. It was time to go home. Sir John Hall ensured that the sisters were given a private salon on the boat, the Cleopatra, which left for England on April 12. They got a tremendous welcome back in Baggett Street, Dublin, the mother house of the order, when they arrived there on May the 22nd. Sister Aloysius Doyle and Stanislaus Hayfron could hardly wait to get home to their hometown of Carlo. And everyone in the town, town wanted to see the Russian nuns. Of course, (laughs) yes. So after a well-earned rest, they returned to minister to the people. And, of course, eventually Sister Lucius and her companions came to Gort in November 1857. So the 16 months spent in Crimea has to be, Tom, one of the most glorious chapters in the history of the Mercy Sisters community. Without question. Absolutely outstanding service in very, very difficult situations. Now, I did find one other little quote which I thought was, you know, interesting. Again, about the rivalry between Bridgman and Nightingale. Now, don't forget, Sister Bridgman, nobody has ever heard of her.
1: No, that's right.
0: But everyone has heard (coughs) of Florence Nightingale. But anyway... Uh, I found a little, an article by a Tre, Teresa C. Meehan, uh, an, an article entitled Irish Nurses in the Crimean War. And this is a quote. It was a sad reality of the time that the relationship between Mary Frances Bridgman and Florence Nightingale became immersed in the web of intense cultural, political and social conflict. It was complicated further by their individual personalities. They had different approaches to nursing practice and different administrative styles. Nonetheless, both women of great courage and determination who loved nursing and contributed in their own particular way to early modern nursing development. Now, towards still the quote towards the end of the war, Florence visited Mary Frances and her group in the Crimean hospitals to invite them back under her nursing direction, an invitation which they declined, as I said. Nonetheless, Florence requested details of their nursing system. Mary Frances' journal, she was another one that kept a journal. Mary Frances Bridgman's journal records the fact quote, Miss Nightingale took notes on our manner of nursing, which she hoped might be prof my patients would profit by it some day. So as I say, the poor nuns Oh yeah, the, the only recompense they got, Tom was 230 pounds paid by paid by some british government official for their services for their sterling services to those soldiers in the most awful conditions yeah. well that
1: was of course a lot of money in those days i
0: suppose It was yeah. but yeah. gee still though 230 you know it would
1: appear from that last quote that the <coughs> better nurses were the mercy
0: sisters i'm almost certain of it
1: rather than florence nightingale i mean when yeah. When finally she got her ego to one side and asked yeah. for help, yes. and asked them to stay on, <coughs> yes, yeah, yeah, but exactly. I'm still going to be the boss.
0: Yeah, I know. Yeah, that yeah, kind of smacks
1: yeah. of insecurity
0: yeah. to me. Well, she was. I tell you, there was various things going on with her. She was very a very committed, strict Anglican. Yes, she didn't have much time for Catholics. There's no question. Yeah. So being landed with a bunch of Catholic nuns just absolutely went against the grain as far as she was concerned initially. But as you say, gradually she began to realise these women are brilliant. They are, you know, they're they're doing the most extraordinary job. Far more efficient. Yeah. Yeah. And she had to eat humble pie to ask them to stay. But of course, she said, under my supervision. She she was also a very influential lady, and the publicity about her back in London was such that she was really idolised and praised highly. And in fact, her she recorded nursing skills, and I believe her books, are, you know, they, they are the basis of nursing practices today. Yeah and uh, so oh, I mean, i'm not for a moment suggesting oh i know that she was incompetent or yeah anything. you see this is this is the interesting thing yeah. both were very strong women yes exactly. you know yeah. you know yeah. and
1: uh i yeah, i two formidable women yeah, yeah. but i've
0: yeah. never never seen a rival to or never heard of a rival to nightingale before so no. it's interesting that there no. was such a rival indeed yeah but anyway poor sister bridgeman has forgotten but uh, Well no. not by the Galway Advertiser, I'm I very hope happy not. to say, yeah, I yeah. hope not. Yeah, I yeah, hope yeah. not. Yeah. Well listen, Tom, will we leave it at that as we yeah. contemplate all these rivalries between these two interesting women. Indeed. And Amen. we'll go yeah. our way and we'll meet again next week. Next week, week Tom. Lacuna Jay. Yeah. All right, Tom. Take care. And mind that slippy road.